Welcome back to our teaching through Genesis. My name is James Travis. I'm the pastor here at Saar Fellowship in Bahrain. And as with last time in chapter one, if you've not read Genesis chapter two recently, do go ahead and press pause. Go ahead and read chapter two, and then we'll jump into it together. So last time in chapter one, we saw the first six days of creation, and we kind of referenced the seventh day. And today in chapter two, we'll see the seventh day. We'll see God resting. We'll see the creation of man and woman, and we'll see God's model for marriage. So let's go ahead and dive right in for Genesis chapter two. We'll read three verses to start with. Genesis two, one to three, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we see there in verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day, and he made the seventh day a gift to us. God rested to show completion and as we referenced last time, to give us a pattern for our working week, for the, for, the, for the times in our week where we work and the times in our week when we rest, God worked for six and rested for one. And we said that in our modern world, in our modern culture, that's not going to sit very well with some people because, you know, people want to work less and people want more and more and more leisure time. But God's pattern for work and rest is to work six properly and to rest on one day properly for us as, as modern day believers in jesus we don't need to work towards god six days a week we don't need to take a sabbath day's rest from our efforts to work towards god because god's word to us tells us in the book of hebrews that we now rest every day in the finished work of jesus so there's the seventh day god rests he shows us that it's complete and he sets as a pattern for our working week for us as well. As we continue through chapter 2, it begins in verse 4 with, These are the generations of... And that's a phrase that we see a couple of times in Genesis. If you were to turn your Bibles forward a page or two, maybe you might see the start of chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then a few pages further forward... In chapter 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So it's introducing a new section to us. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. And then we get a little bit of a review in the first few verses of chapter 2. And we see a couple of key things. We see in verse 7 that the Lord God formed the men of dust from the ground. We see that as people we are made of unspectacular material. But then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. The Hebrew word, the Greek word, the two main languages of the Bible of Old Testament and New Testament both carry the meaning of spirit. So God puts his spirit into us and we become a living creature. If you read this in the King James Version, it's going to say that man became a living soul. So we are made ordinarily of unspectacular material, but it's when God breathes into us, when God gives us life, then we are truly alive, then we truly come alive. 
And as we carry on, we see that there are a couple of trees mentioned. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some people would, would suggest that, that chapter 2 was written from Adam's perspective, because there's not really anybody else who could have seen this. Eve is just about to be created, just about to be made. So really, when all other logical thought has been exhausted, there's only really Adam that could have brought these details to us, obviously via other people, and um, it's widely accepted that Moses uh, compiled these records and, and produced what we would know as the book of Genesis. But what a, what a great thing to just stop and think about, that Genesis chapter 2, is the eyewitness testimony of Adam because there was nobody else who, who knew these things, who saw these things. And what a wonderful thought. The very first human being created in God's wonderful creation. This is how he experienced things. So as we get to verse 10, 11, 12, 13 and 14, we read of the rivers that come out of Eden. And verse 15 is very, very interesting. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here's Adam living in absolute paradise, yet he still has work to do and he is still entrusted with a task and with responsibilities and with temporary stewardship. Although I guess at, at this point in the narrative, this could have been an everlasting stewardship. He's in the garden, he can eat from the tree of life. But anyway, Adam's in the garden and, he, and he's given a job to do. He's not just in paradise, he's not just in Eden, just to be there and just to soak it all up. Adam is there and he is given a job to do. He's put in the garden to work it and to keep it. So any ideas that we've got of us going to paradise to be with God, going to heaven and just simply being there. Adam is in paradise and he has a job to do. If Adam is in paradise and he has a job to do, surely we down here now on God's creation have jobs to do as well. We've got temporary stewardship over God's creation as we are down here. We've got temporary stewardship over God's creation now. And verse 16, again, is very interesting. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And then 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So if we back up a few verses, we see in verse 9 that there are two trees. We read in verse 9, uh, The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then down in verse 16 and 17, Adam's told you can eat of anything in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what do we take from this? Well, we see that Adam was allowed to eat from the tree of life. So Adam's physical death was just not part of the plan originally. Adam here is told, you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
but he is allowed to eat from the tree of life. And again, what a huge privilege this was for Adam. He's in paradise, he's working God's creation, he's tending God's creation, he's caring for God's creation, and he's allowed to eat from the tree of life. We see that Adam is a being made with free will. We see that by sheer weight of the fact that Adam is given a choice. Adam is given free will to choose to obey or disobey. You can eat everything but you're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam does have free will because he's told, you know, please don't do this. If it was impossible for him to eat, he wouldn't have been told, don't eat from it. So by sheer weight of the fact that Adam is told you're not to eat from this tree, it means that he can. If he didn't have the ability to, he wouldn't have been told. So Adam is in paradise, he's working paradise, he's caring for paradise. And he has free will to choose to obey God or to disobey God. As we continue in verse 18, we see that God recognizes, well, God, of course, God already knew. God shares with Adam the fact that it's not good for him to be alone and he will make a helper fit for him. We read a helper fit for him, and that carries the meaning of an equal being fit for him in, uh, to, to complement who Adam is, to complement what Adam is. A helper that's equal in the need for God's grace, a helper that's equal in value and in dignity and in worth, a helper that's different but very complementary. And Adam is prepared for this need. Adam is, is put through this process of naming all the animals, which, you know, doesn't happen in our modern English. We like to think of this picture in our mind where all these animals are paraded before Adam and he gives them English names. So there goes an elephant and there goes a giraffe and there goes a tiger and there goes a lion. But to the best of what we know of the Bible, Adam wasn't created with the ability to speak English. So Adam is prepared for this need. This need he has of a helper fit for him is shown to him by him naming all these animals. We read, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the men to see what he would call them. And whatever the men called every living creature, that was its name. So just if we pause here a minute, the, the pre-fall mind of Adam was just brilliant to name all these animals that God brought before him. What a wonderful mind Adam had. And in verse 20, then the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So all these animals are brought before Adam and Adam's starting to see that they are just not quite right to be a partner, to be a helper, to be a complement for him. And then in verse 21, we see what David Guzik calls history's first surgery. In verse 21, we read, So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. History's first surgery, and then we see God's supernatural anesthetic, if you will. You know, so the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And we see in verse 22 that it was a rib taken from Adam 
that was made into a woman and she was brought to the men. And there's an old Jewish um, there's an old Jewish way of talking about this that rabbis use where they say that Eve was made from the rib of men so that she is close to his heart and she is under his arm for protection. And that's quite a nice way of thinking about this. We see that Eve is made from a, a part of Adam's body and that brings them an essential togetherness. They are, they are made of the same stuff. They are, there's an essential togetherness in the fact that Adam and Eve are made of the same stuff. They are equal in standing before God. They are equal in honor. They are equal in dignity. There is a, a, a oneness but a distinction in them. And then Adam says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of men. And again, there's an essential oneness because Eve has come from Adam, but there is a distinction. They, have a, they are different as people. They are different as humans. But yet, they're so complimentary that Adam instantly recognizes this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of men. And then in verses 24 and 25, we see God's model for marriage. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God's model for marriage is a man and a woman, a man and his wife. We see that they become one flesh, and this happens over time. And they become one flesh sexually, they become one flesh spiritually. And again, there's, a, there's an, a oneness there where two people are joined in this divine union. There's a oneness about them, yet a distinction, because they are two different people who complement each other so well in a union recognized by God. And in verse 25, we see that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this is not per se nakedness like we would think of nakedness. We would think of nakedness as simply being nude, just having no clothes on. But this carries a deeper meaning. This is naked as in they are so open with each other. They're so exposed to each other and to God. There is nothing covering them. They have no shame. They have no guilt. At this point in the narrative, they have no sin. They are totally open before each other and before God, and therefore it's right and it's accurate to say that they were naked. Very, very interestingly, Jesus quoted this passage in Matthew 19, and so did Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And elsewhere in the Bible, we, we see the principle of one man and one woman and how they are to treat each other referenced as well. In Ephesians 5, 28, we read that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And as we've just said, Eve was made out of Adam's body. 
So it's right to say that she is literally a part of him. And we carry on in Ephesians and we read, He who loves his wife loves himself. And again, that speaks of the union of two becoming one, that essential oneness. He who loves his wife loves himself. In verse 29 of Ephesians 5, it says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So that's Genesis chapter 2. We see God resting on the seventh day. We see the creation of man and woman, and we see God's model for marriage. Next time, we'll get into Genesis chapter 3. There's lots to talk about. We see the fall. But until next time, God bless.